This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Your Radio Doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, products, physicians, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on Your Radio Doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars, Medicare's highest rating for 2022. Some plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits and some prescription drugs. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is a paid endorsement. Talk Radio 1210. WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. Always live on the free Odyssey app. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Saturday afternoon at 5. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, seven months or ten months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good evening and welcome to your radio doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Our topic this week is suicide, a very painful but necessary discussion because suicide is a major public health problem and a leading cause of death in our country. The effects of suicide go beyond the person who acts to take his or her life. It can also have a lasting effect on family, friends, and communities. We welcome our very special guest, Dr. Matthew Winterstein, Associate Professor and Director of Research within the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at Jefferson University Hospital, as well as a licensed clinical psychologist. He's also the Director of the David Farber Aspire Center a brand new center within the Farber Institute for Neuroscience focused on the advancement of suicide prevention and intervention, research and education. And when I asked for his titles, he was far too humble to let me know his extensive profile. So I'm going to brag for you, Matt, because you deserve it. <laughs> Thanks, Marianne. Matt Winterstein, you're welcome, is recognized nationally, extensive background in developing screening protocols for suicidal youth for primary care providers, school personnel in and around the city of Philadelphia. He's done studies at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He's had grants from national organizations, including the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Also, long-term studies to assess various parent and family predictors of suicide behavior in high-risk youth. He's now studying mental health and suicide risk among students in the health profession fields at Jefferson, which is fascinating and so necessary. Um, and he's part of the National Task Forces, that's plural, working to improve care for suicidal patients in emergency departments. Welcome, Matt. You are incredible. Thank you, Marianne. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, there is so much important information to share. And I, I think what you emphasize so much is we're trying to remove the stigma from having these conversations. It's, it's sad, um, but it's what gives us depth. And, and um, you are doing incredibly beautiful work. So let's start, Matt, uh, with suicidal behavior. There's a whole spectrum there 
that you're going to explain for us, if you would. Yeah, I think the the easiest thing to think about, particularly for the other providers that are that are listening, is that suicidal behavior is really uh, a constellation of um, whether it be behaviors, thoughts, etc. And and what we're really targeting is suicide attempts. And so how we define that is it's any behavior that had the intent to result in death. And so it's really, really important that the intent part becomes part of that uh, definition and part of that conversation. I recognize in a lot of clinical practice, we can't easily define intent and determine intent based on what somebody is sharing. Um, but it, it really doesn't have to do with the lethality of their behavior. I've worked with kids who have done everything from put their finger in a in an electrical socket with the intent to electrocute themselves and die. That was a suicide attempt. I've seen kids who have filled up a sink with water and, and attempted to drown themselves in the sink in their bathroom and stuff like that, which, which is an unfortunate, you know, reality. But we know that the lethality, that's incredibly low versus some other behaviors that the lethality is much higher, but with zero intent to die, therefore, it's not a suicide attempt. Mm-hmm. And so I guess sometimes it's a cry for help because these children or people of any age are in so much pain, they, they don't know which way to turn. And, and I guess, yeah, how often would you say um, the attempts are there, maybe in a younger child, but a, an older child might see life differently and be better able to um, lose his or her life? Yeah, it, it, it really begs the larger question, which is why do people die by suicide? And we could probably do 20 shows on trying to answer that question in and of itself. It's it's complex and challenging and often very idiosyncratic for, for individuals. Um, but certainly we see, you know, in individuals, kids, as they get older, you know, they may be more intent on ending their own life. But I always sort of see it from the perspective of while they might be saying that they want to die, what I believe is the case is they're really trying to end what we're considering to be this psychological pain and distress that they're experiencing. And it's not that they necessarily want to cease to exist, but what they want to cease to exist is their pain, their suffering that they're going through. And they believe then if they end their own life, that somehow that pain and suffering would also cease to exist. And I I have to say, from a clinical perspective, I have had far too many conversations with individuals where I've, you, know, you have to have a good relationship with them to pull it off. But you can sit down and ask people, you know, show me the data. So if you die today, what's the likelihood that this emotional pain and distress is going to go away? I mean, as, as doctors, we can sit there and go, okay, the data is pretty clear. That's probably the case. However, there's no data that you're ever going to get to support that statement. So you might be right. And what happens if you're not? And so it much be it'd be much greater and to our benefit to actually have you go through this time. Let's work on these things together because then you can experience the joy of what life has to offer once you've, you know, gone past the challenges that you're experiencing today. And you say that so beautifully because nobody wants to die if they're having a joy filled life full of support from family and friends. They just want to get away from that awful piercing pain from a social setting um, or bullying or whatever, we're going to talk about the various things um, that lead people to have these ideas or, or, or these actions. Um, I know, I know I'm in what little reading I've done, the suicide rates seem to increase between the 60s and 90s. And there was another rise in around 2008 to 2009, not even getting close to the pandemic. 
What do you think caused those trends back then versus now? You know, it's it's interesting. It's hard to really put your finger on exactly what it is. I mean, I think, you know, society has changed dramatically between the 1960s and the 1990s. I think there was a lot more autonomy for children um, as those decades uh, went on. I think there's increased demands on kids in terms of their role and their responsibilities. And I think one of the things that has been a really good thing in many ways, but also has become challenging for some is that there's an increased connection to the global world around them and sort of access to that type of information. I mean, you know, when you and I were in school and we had to write a paper, we used these things called encyclopedias. And, you know, my own kids have never even cracked one open and I'm not even sure they would know what one is. Um, but we would fight through and have to figure out how to get stuff done. And for them now, it's like they push a few words into a, into a search engine and pop out some answer. And if it doesn't pop out the way that they want, for some kids, it's like, well, that's too much work. I'm not going to bother doing that kind of stuff. But so I think culturally things have really changed. Um, that has made things more challenging. I do think, though, it's important to recognize that in the last, I don't know, I think five or six years, the the stigma, as you alluded to before, the stigma around mental health has changed quite a bit. There's more people talking about mental health. There's more people talking about suicide. And I think to some degree, while that's kind of shining the light on the concerns that we are having, what it's also doing is putting it out into the world and the culture where people are then talking about it more freely. It appears that more people perhaps are having thoughts of suicide. That's probably not the case. They're just more comfortable now expressing it than they were before. We can only hope for that. Um, What would you say about the pandemic? Because I'm seeing that one silver lining. We always look for silver linings in tragedy. Did the pandemic lead to telemedicine and telehealth? And maybe that was an access that helped some people that said, you know what, that that one call, uh, that access to the doctor or a nurse doctor or someone um, really helped me stop and think before I moved on. Yeah, telemedicine, as you know, was around before the pandemic. And and certainly at Jefferson, we were pushing really hard to get people to start utilizing it. The reality was that insurance companies weren't paying for it. Um, and the pandemic really put us in a position where I could not have people in my office. You know, I could not see patients in person. That was not going to, that didn't follow city standards. That wasn't following guidelines that the state or the federal government was issuing at the time. But yet these individuals needed to be seen. And so telemedicine became the platform by which we were doing that. Insurance companies started to pay for it. Um, you know, states were actually granting temporary licenses. So like I have some patients that live in New Jersey that were coming into Philadelphia for their inpatient appointments. Well, now they're in New Jersey and I'm in Pennsylvania. I could get a temporary license in New Jersey. So in many ways, the silver lining is access to services. The reality, though, is the demand still exceeds the availability of services that are available, you know, at, at the time anyway. And so it's it's a little bit challenging. We want to be able to help everybody. Um, but it's, you know, it, it's a struggle, I think, at the moment. But that's not a new thing. No. I, I, and that was my that's a great segue to what I was going to ask next, because, uh, yes, some of the things are painfully obvious, the pandemic. We can apply so many uh, challenges to that. But even before the pandemic, and we'll talk about risk factors, but things that maybe not lead to full-fledged uh, um, depression, but just sadness. These poor kids, 
uh, you know, if one young woman, uh, you know, a girl, I could say, under posts that she got a new hairdo and she gets 25 likes, but her friend gets a haircut and gets 50 likes, it hurts them. And it's so, it, even if they don't express it, it's subliminal. It has to wear on them. So they might not be depressed, but they're sad from that. And I, and I guess an older theme might be puberty itself. That's just tough for, for all of us. We all look back yeah. and say it wasn't an easy time. Do And I guess this would apply more to girls than boys. Do girls that um, mature at a different pace, maybe earlier or later, are they more likely to have issues? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not sure that the literature has looked at that specifically. Um, but it, certainly we know that as kids get older, you know, as a cohort, as they're getting older and stuff like that, their risk for suicidal behavior tends to increase, um, you know, at, throughout adolescence and stuff like that. And that may be related to puberty. I think it's related to a lot of the other things that you just mentioned there as well. Mm -hmm. But I mean, like uh, a, a girl who develops physically more quickly, right. is she going to be faced with different challenges? Do boys look at her differently? That kind of thing. All those things, that's all that they're universal trends, right? And now we yes. layer it with pandemic yep. and social media. Mm -hmm. Yep. Let's take a little break and we'll be right back with Dr. Matt Winterstein. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars, Medicare's highest rating for 2022. Some plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits and some prescription drugs. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is a paid endorsement. When we ask questions, we make sure they're the big ones. Like, how can the healthcare industry earn the trust of patients? And what if your health outcomes and access to care weren't defined by your skin color, sexuality, gender, or zip code? At Genentech, we're removing barriers and partnering across the medical community to make clinical research as diverse as the world we serve to ensure communities have access to healthcare. Learn how we are working to make healthcare more equitable at gene.com slash askbiggerquestions. Welcome back to your radio doctor in this very important discussion about suicide and hopefully being able to recognize warning signs and prevention. Dr. Matt Winterstein is our guest. Matt, we've talked a little bit about um, suicide in children and adolescents. Are there distinctions in suicidal thoughts and behavior patterns in boys versus girls? And are there uh, elements that distinguish behaviors and thoughts in different races and ethnicities? Sure. Yes. Actually, there are uh, certainly what we know is that suicidal thoughts, at least in terms of data that we're able to collect. And of course, you have to remember where we get this from. So oftentimes it's survey data. Sometimes this happens in school surveys. And certainly we do this in Pennsylvania is that we find that there are certainly more girls who have thoughts of suicide, uh, at least, you know, that are that are documented that way that are have indicated they've had thoughts of suicide. Girls also attempt suicide probably at a rate that's about three times higher than boys during the adolescent years. That said, if you look at the national data, about 80% of suicide deaths in high school age youth in this country are boys. Mm -hmm. 
So while girls may be thinking about suicide perhaps more frequently, girls are making more suicide attempts, boys are more likely to actually die by suicide, oftentimes because of the lethality of the types of behaviors that they engage in. And I think that's that's historically at least what's been a, a player in that. As far as racial differences, you know, one of the things I think that's really important to, to notice is that in 2020, um, there was a lot of concern that the national data would show that the suicide numbers in this country had actually increased because of the pandemic. And what we actually found was that 2020 was the second year in a row where the number of suicide deaths in the United States actually decreased. However, Within the African-American community, what they found was there was an increase in suicide deaths within that population. Uh, some studies are showing that it amounted to almost 40% in terms of the amount of the increase. So it's a wow. pretty significant increase when the general U.S. population as a whole went down. Well, and we talked too about um, risk factors. That would be something I know you want to address. And a lot of times... I don't know what percentage you would say that there's an underlying psychiatric disorder like depression uh, or at least anxiety. Tell us about that, if you would. Sure. Yeah. There's been a lot of studies out there that that use a methodology called psychological autopsy. I mean, and I assume most physicians out there understand the concept of autopsy. This is really... Uh, kind of going in after somebody has died by suicide, interviewing family members, interviewing people that are close to them, and really kind of pulling out the information for the purpose of preventing future death, but pulling out information to best understand this. And when they do that, what they have found historically is about 90% of individuals who die by suicide either had a psychiatric condition or very likely had a psychiatric condition, even though they probably either weren't seeking help for it or it had not been diagnosed. So about 90% of those who died by suicide likely had a psychiatric problem. That said, I still get a little fixated on the 10% that did not because that's the group that we often don't see. They don't come into our practice by any stretch and you know, often don't get identified out in the community. And that was my other question because I'm sure that there are people that, you know, even if somebody's been depressed, it's always when it finally happens, if some young person or, or a person of any age is successful at taking his or her life and, and they end up dying from suicide, um, you still look back and, and think, boy, they seem stable or they seem to be in a, at a good plateau. How often would you say that suicide happens impulsively because a stable person meets with a moment of crisis and they have a breakdown because of a life stress, like a financial problem, not a child, but a relationship breakup that can happen in adolescence or somebody who's in chronic pain or illness. We can't predict right. those, right? Right. Yeah. I think, I think it's an important distinction to think about suicidal thoughts being impulsive versus suicidal behaviors being impulsive. And so oftentimes the suicidal thoughts emerge over time. So it isn't that suddenly somebody wakes up one day and says, listen, I, I feel like I want to take my own life. I have never ever in my nearly 20 years of practice met somebody who's suicidal that said to me, I want to feel this right. way. They desperately not, they do not want to feel this way at all. Um, and so you run into these kinds of situations where individuals are over time, eventually getting to the point where they start to calculate is, do I have a meaningful life? Is it worth living? And so the suicidal thoughts kind of evolve over time. Makes sense. That said, it's very, very uncommon for somebody who's never, whether it be expressed suicidal thoughts or not expressed suicidal thoughts, to engage in a suicidal behavior impulsively. 
The more concerning thing is that somebody who has suicidal thoughts, but perhaps at this moment are not having them, but yet something sort of triggers uh, a crisis in that person. They are confronted with an opportunity and they act on that, those thoughts and end up taking their own life. And so behaviors can sometimes be impulsive. The thoughts themselves are rarely ever mm -hmm. that way. So what would you say are the risk factors other than, say, underlying depression or mental illness? What, how would you categorize bullying or um, the expression that we read about suicide contagion, that it seems to happen in clusters or there are outbreaks in young people? Um, how do we categorize them? Are they risk factors? Are they precipitating factors? Well, I always like to think about it as in a cluster of a larger picture. Like what's the whole complex that we're talking about here? And so if we're, we're talking about somebody who's been bullied, you know, there's a number of, of things that contribute to bullying. It's not necessarily the person is, um, there's not a, there's not a perfect, uh, what's the best word? There's not a perfect scenario by which somebody is always a target of bullying, right? You couldn't list, here's the four things. And if you have those four things, therefore you're going to be bullied. That's mm -hmm. not the way that it works. But individuals who get bullied, some of them go on to become depressed. Some of them go on to be anxious. Some of them go on to be suicidal, whereas others do not. So I think there's there's certainly underlying factors that exist within individuals that increase their risk. I think we don't have a great handle on what all of those things are. I think there's a lot of deep-rooted psychological um, kind of needs that, that get played out in interpersonal relationships. And so I think mm -hmm. that's one of them. You know, people talk about um, sexual orientation and LGBTQ plus youth being higher risk. They, data suggests that they make anywhere from three to seven times as many suicide attempts as those mm -hmm. who would identify as being heterosexual. And is it because of their sexual orientation? I would say no. It has nothing probably specifically to do with that. What it has to do with is how how they approach the world with that. How much do they feel comfortable and secure in their own identity and expressing that to other people and how much, how much, um, you know, recept, uh, I don't have the right word here. So we're going to go back. <laughs> Self-esteem. Well, yeah. how much the world, you know, can be responsive to their identity? How much can they reflect who they are and, and be accepting of those kinds of things? And when they're not put in those kinds of situations, you then feel like you're being ostracized. You then feel like you're being separated from others and you're disconnected. I mean, the one thing that we know about suicide prevention is individuals who feel like they are connected to other people and they have social supports around them, they do better getting through the difficult times. So if I understand you right, it's how the message is received in a particular individual and the support of family. Um, and I was, you know, we're talking about warning signs. That's our next subject. A- yeah. Do they differ in children versus adolescents or children and adolescents versus adults? And B, do those warning signs manifest differently to a parent or a teacher? I would think yes, or a doctor or a sibling. That's that's really what you're spending so much of your good time on. Hmm? Yeah, the warning signs are really important because the difference between a risk factor and a warning sign is is simply a risk factor is anything that increases somebody's risk. So the fact that I'm a middle-aged white guy actually increases my risk for suicide because demographically speaking, I'm in a very high risk category. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that I'm suicidal at mm -hmm. all. Um, depression, again, depression is a risk factor, but it is not a warning sign for suicide. There's plenty of people who are depressed who do not think about suicide. And there's actually a decent number of people who are suicidal who would not have described their experience as being depressed. Right. 
they might be more anxious or whatever. So yes, there are differences though in youth versus adults when it comes to warning signs. Um, lots of information here, so I'll do the best I can to kind of get through it quickly. The warning signs that we find in youth tend to be, you know, they're talking about or expressing thoughts of suicide. We obviously want to take that seriously, even though people have heard young people say things like, oh, I'm just going to kill myself. And they're like, I don't believe that for a second. I think you just want this or that or whatever it is. I think we still need to address it as if this is you know, quite serious. And how do we help them uh, express that in more effective ways if that's not what they're really trying to say? Hopelessness is another area. And again, as I said before, suicidal individuals desperately are trying to get better. And whether it is a perception that they have or actual reality, things seem to get in the way of their ability to believe that they're in fact getting better or, or, or doing those kinds of things. And they can fall into a period of hopelessness um, around that. Um, another thing has to do with emotional pain or distress and kind of the expression of those kinds of things. This often seems like something that'd be very internal for somebody. And as an outsider, would we see that in, in, in individuals? And we've asked people in the past, kind of what does that look like? Um, and the best thing that I can tell you is I've had a number of people say to me, it's kind of like when somebody has a migraine headache, sometimes they're tearful. And it isn't that they're tearful because they're sad. They're tearful because they're frustrated and they just want that to end. And so that emotional pain and suffering that somebody has, it's overwhelming for them. It's like, I just want that pain and suffering to end, kind of like what we talked about before. And so you end up having that be a, a challenge and a compromise for them. Plus, there's some behaviors that parents and other people can sometimes see in kids. So disconnected with, with social situations and groups around them, uh, increased irritability, agitation, things that are different from the way that they usually are. I mean, some kids are always kind of a little irritable. This is the kid who's not usually that way and starts to act that way. And then of course, changes in sleep. And so you start mm. seeing somebody who is sleeping a lot more, sleeping a lot less. And the less sleeping again, isn't the kid who's up until three in the morning watching that new series on Netflix <laughs> that just came out that day. And I'm going to binge the whole thing. It's the kid who goes to bed at a normal time, but is trying to solve life's problems for hours until mentally they just run out of energy. So I think you've, you've hit on so many important features, including there are those people who don't appear depressed and either attempt or take their lives. And those poor parents and siblings and friends who look back and feel so guilty, I don't like to use that word, feel so awful. Why didn't I see it? Why didn't I help them? It just it just spreads the pain across the board. And how do you right. how do you counsel those people? I'm sure you you've talked to relatives and friends yeah. of. Yeah. It's difficult because the guilt word that you didn't like to use is inevitable. And I think it's not because they fully believe they are responsible. It's just as a parent, you sit there and think, you know, I'm supposed to die before my kid. Yes. And, and under these circumstances, what could I have done differently? What did I do wrong? Um, so a lot of times it's really sort of empathizing with them, validating their experience, helping them to express it because they're scared to death that if they share this with other people, they're worried to tell other people about what's happened. They don't even want to talk to others for a while because they're worried other people think it's their fault. That's not true at all. Um, but listening to them and helping to validate their experiences is the most important first step in kind of working with somebody who's lost someone to suicide. So well said. Let's take a little break and we'll be back to hear a little more about the warning signs of suicide. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, at your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. 
It's health education on demand. Hi, I'm Ritika Kumar from Independence Blue Cross. As a parent, I know our greatest hope in life is to protect our children. As a physician, I know that the best way to protect our children and boost their immunity is to get them vaccinated against COVID-19. With schools back in session, it's important to stay up to date on their vaccines. The COVID-19 vaccines are approved for children six months and older. Vaccination, it's the very best way to love and protect them. When you have orthopedic issues, you need a physician who eats, sleeps, and breathes orthopedics. You need an exceptionally specialized Rothman orthopedics physician. They not only specialize in orthopedics, each Rothman physician only focuses on one area of the body, which means you can have confidence that you can get past pain and be what you were. Schedule conveniently online at RothmanOrtho.com. That's RothmanOrtho.com. When we ask questions, we make sure they're the big ones. Like when it comes to diseases, can we strive to treat, prevent, and even reverse them? And how can we make healthcare more effective and more affordable? These are the types of questions that can help impact the lives of so many patients, that help push the boundaries of innovation and healthcare for all communities. At Genentech, we are the pioneers of the biotech industry, tackling some of the biggest questions in healthcare. Learn more at gene.com slash askbiggerquestions. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, now Saturday afternoons at 5, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. We're here on Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Matt Winterstein from Jefferson. Matt, we were talking about um, looking for warning signs, which aren't always there. And I know the American Academy of Pediatrics suggests to their providers that they have what's called direct questioning. And they ask a young person, have you wished you were dead? Have you had thoughts? And, and we could go through the questions. Have you ever tried to hurt yourself or kill yourself? And I guess my question is, should parents be brave enough to ask those questions as well? It's a loaded question. But the answer is absolutely. I mean, I always kind of fall back on this issue of we sometimes ask the we sometimes have to ask the questions that we don't necessarily want the answers to. Um, but the problem mm-hmm. is, if we don't have the capability of starting this conversation with our own children, how can we expect others to do that? Um, and and so it's so important for a parent if you're worried about your child and you're not con- you're not sure that they're doing okay, you know. The reality is this, you're going to ask them, hey, are, how are you? Are you doing all right? If your kid's struggling, expect that nine times out of 10, they're going to tell you, yeah, they're fine, or they can get through it. It's not that big a deal or whatever mm-hmm. it is. It's really, really important, not just for parents, but anybody who might be asking somebody these questions to expect the kid's going to say they're fine, but to follow up and say, listen, I've been concerned because of this or that, or you know, I've noticed these kinds of things, and it just doesn't seem like you. Are you sure everything's okay? Because- if we just allow them to tell us that they're fine and we go, oh, okay, good, then we've heard the answer we want to hear, but we're not hearing the accurate answer. And if we're going to really help our children and help the people that are in our community, the only way to do that is to really express our level of concern, let them know what we're worried about and be direct with them. Don't ask kids, are you thinking about hurting yourself? And this is the same thing for AAP, which is if we ask somebody, are you thinking about hurting yourself? Well, when someone says yes to that, what does that mean? I have to ask more questions just to figure out where you're actually going with that. And so that's why they're focused on the direct questioning and kind of really getting down to what are we talking about right here? Opening the door. So maybe that child or adolescent knows 
that people see and my my ears are open my heart is open i'm here to help you because i love you right and we all have bad days and i'm here to help you realize that if you don't do well in the test there's there's another direction we'll, we'll yep. get you a tutor or if you don't make the basketball team play checkers try out for the try out for the the track team do do something different fill that void uh, with your support so you're spending so much time and it's brilliant trying to train primary care providers uh, and that could be school personnel as we talked about in and around the city of Philadelphia tell us a little bit about that there you want to train them in suicide risk assessment and management yeah, so we've done a lot of work with primary care providers all across Pennsylvania, actually, for through a variety of grants that we have. And, you know, the focus on that is, you know, we're trying to get them to screen, you know, youth who might be at risk for suicide. The reality is we want them to screen everybody. Yeah. The reason being is, mm-hmm. yeah, because if, if, you know, if you just sit there and go, gee, mm-hmm. you know, Marianne looks depressed, I'm going to screen her. Uh, and yet somebody else doesn't look depressed. I'm not going to screen that person. You will miss, miss people. You're going to yeah. miss lots of people. So we want them to screen everybody. But there's a reality, which is, as you well know, primary care providers are like the quarterbacks for healthcare. It's like they are there to take the snap and then deal with the issue if they need to deal with it or throw it to somebody else who can handle it. And we need to really equip them with the tools to be able to take that initial step and say, you know, how are you doing? How are you know, and, and really get down to are they having thoughts of suicide? So the assessment part is very, very important. But beyond that, they need to understand what can they do in the primary care office to be effective in the work they're doing. Because the sad reality, as we talked about before, is you know, somebody in pediatrics might hear right here might discover that there's a kid who is at risk for suicide, want to refer them to our psychiatry outpatient practice. We are interested in taking them, but we might have a multi-month kind of wait list. That's a problem. Mm. So what can you do in that primary care setting to be useful and effective and so forth? And so we do some discussion about brief interventions, developing safety plans for individuals, giving them the resources to have in the event that they get into a crisis. How can they get in touch with somebody before they get to an appointment? And then there really is a discussion about appropriate um, pharmacotherapy because you know, people are still a little hesitant about some of the SSRIs and other antidepressant medications simply because the FDA black box warning, which came out nearly two decades ago. Um, but that, you know, the point of that wasn't to get people to stop prescribing. It was to get people to pay closer attention when they mm-hmm. are prescribing. So we want to do that. We talk about documentation because that's obviously th- something that has a lot of providers concerned. Like, what do I put in my chart? What do I not put in my chart? And then how do you get people connected to the services that they need after that appointment? Because your job as a PCP is not to be their uh, pseudotherapist. It's really to be you know, somebody who can uh, assess for initial risk. And then at some threshold, we say we need to really bring somebody else into this. Or let's make a referral somewhere else for, for outpatient care, perhaps. And you bring up, again, so many good points, Matt, because I've been on uh, school uh, boards and i um, I know that uh, when uh, uh, drug testing, randomized yeah. drug testing was first brought up at a meeting, there were parents who objected to it. And I could sort of see, but as a physician, well, more as a, as a mother, I would say, you know what? There's a little stain on that, that child's record, but maybe we're going to save his life. Right. And that I'm sure could be tough for the primary care providers too. They have to really win the trust of the parents saying, I'm doing this because your right. child's in pain, your child, right. your teenager's in pain. And, and, and that's a whole, as you say, that's another show in itself. 
So if a provider, a teacher, even a parent sees a, a warning sign, how do they report it? I know there's a new crisis number, 988. Yeah, 988 is not necessarily for reporting those kinds of things. 988 is is a suicide and crisis lifeline. It is there to support people who are struggling, who could be uh, dealing with a behavioral health crisis. It could be that they're suicidal. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are trained counselors that answer those calls. And so if somebody dials 988, what you are guaranteed to get is somebody who will answer that call, who can assess somebody for risk over the phone. If you're, And you don't have to necessarily be the person who's struggling to make the call. So again, if you're a parent, you're with your child, your child is starting to disclose that perhaps they're having thoughts of suicide and you're thinking, what in the world do I do next? I'm not quite sure how to be helpful here. You know, you can call 988. They may want to talk to your kid. Your kid may not want to talk to them and they can still help you as a parent in terms of what are some things to be thinking about? What are some resources that you can have? How can you best support your child during this? Um, but it is a, it's a fantastic number. And, and what 988 is doing, even though it's not a new service, it really is just replacing what used to be called the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. So it's not really a new service. We've had these call centers all over the country for you know probably almost, uh, almost two decades now. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it's doing is it's putting a major emphasis on behavioral health nationally by giving it a three-digit number that everyone should be able to remember to call. It's just, I, I sort of equate it to this. If my house is on fire, I'm not calling the 10-digit number for the fire department down the street. No, that's I'm, right. I'm calling 911. Right. And it's the same kind of idea here is if somebody's mm-hmm. really struggling, we don't want them to look for resources. We want them to know what they are. But I bet a lot of people are not familiar with 988. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 988 is it. So it went live effective uh, July 16th of 2022. Mm-hmm. Again, not a new service, but you could start dialing that number officially at that date. It, quite honestly, it was available before that on cell phone carriers throughout the country. Yeah. Um, but people could start dialing that. And, and the truth is the national marketing strategy for 988 isn't, a, isn't intended to go live until July of 2023. So right now, what you're getting is some discussions like this, things that are popping up in the media and so forth, where people are talking about 988. But I suspect that next summer, you're going to see a lot more out there on national campaigns around what is 988? How do you get in touch with somebody? What does it mean? You'll see it everywhere. Uh, We're just not there yet. Good. But it's good for people to know that there's a a direct line that they could call and uh, at least start the process. You know, we talked a little bit offline um, about the instances where it can be hard to determine whether a person has lost his or her life. intentionally uh, through suicide or accidentally because we hear of young people with uh, choking games and there's so many names for that. You know, uh, they think if they do a stranglehold or even I guess with a rope, a, a ligation, that if they cut off their oxygen or hypoxia as we call it uh, temporarily, they feel dizzy, they, they think they're going to get high without having to spend money on drugs or the danger of drugs. And then the pill parties were I've read about teenagers that take three pills from their mom or dad's medicine cabinet and they put it in the bowl and then each uh, participant (laughs) takes three random pills and they could end up in coma. They could even die. And they don't intend that. They're just trying to get high. And then then the how-to videos and social media, these poor kids are exposed to all this. And, you know, I guess it's a matter of education in the schools. Don't think that you're going to get a quick fun high out of this, what's, what's motivating you to not be afraid of it? 
Yeah, it's 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 such a difficult thing. One of the one of the jobs that I do in my role is I work with the city of Philadelphia and help them review child deaths under the age of 21, mm. where the method of de- method of death determined by the medical examiner was suicide, but they actually lump drug overdose within that same group. And so sure. I'm looking at both of those. And, and quite frankly, certainly if there's a suicide note, it almost always gets you know documented as a suicide death. Um, but there are plenty of drug overdose deaths where if you start looking at the history and you start looking at what's going on, it's a real concern about whether or not, you know, was the intent here to overdose and die or was the intent here just to get high and they accidentally took too much. It's a really fine line to walk as well as a lot of those other scenarios that you just offered. It's, it's, it's such a difficult kind of thing because we don't know. Yeah. And it's, uh, and the other example you hear about is, uh, a young person will go online and they'll they'll order a pill to get themselves, you know, to thinking they'll get a, a really fun high. And it's carfentanil, which is a tweaked version right. of fentanyl and thousands of times stronger. And that one pill takes his or her life and there's no right. turning back. So upsetting. So real quickly, we have about a minute left. Treatment options. How do yeah. people access them? And I, I guess the other question is, do you take your child to a psychologist or a psychiatrist? How is that determined? I think people ask that. Yeah. So treatment options is, is, you know, obviously what we want to do is expect that folks that are in the behavioral health field, whether it be psychologists, psychiatrists, or social workers, licensed clinical social workers, and so forth, that are all have some level of training in this particular area and, and can do this work. I think the important thing to do is to reach out to anyone in that community that can be helpful to you, but to be open and honest with them. This is what my concerns are. Is this somebody that you feel like, can you help me? Can you help my child? Because some people will flat out say, listen, I'm not the best suited person for this, but I would recommend that you reach out to this person or whatever it might be. So um, I think the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist when it comes to this really ultimately determines or it comes down to, are they going to require medication? They're not going to require mm-hmm. medication. You know, I'm a psychologist. People often start with me. If I feel like they need medication, I bring in one of my colleagues and, and you know, we do a consult that way. And then that's the opportunity there. But not everybody does. So um, I think you can start in either place. But in essence, there's a whole network and it starts with the primary care provider or the teacher. And um, thanks to you, that network is becoming stronger and, and more readily available. Let's take a little break and we'll be back for our wrap up. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Hi, I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars. That's Medicare's highest rating for 2022. Some of these Medicare Advantage plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits and some prescription drugs. And all plans include dental, vision, and hearing benefits with no co-pays for routine exams. Medicare's highest rating, Philly's most popular plan. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is a paid endorsement. 
When you have joint pain, you need a physician who eats, sleeps, and breathes joints. Someone so focused on their specialty, they've written the book on it, literally. You need an exceptionally specialized physician from Rothman Orthopedics. They not only specialize in orthopedics, each Rothman physician only focuses on one area of the body, which means you can have confidence that you can get past the pain and be what you were. Schedule conveniently online at RothmanOrtho.com. Official orthopedic partner of the Eagles, Phillies, and Sixers. Now, your weekly prescription brought to you by Genentech, the science-driven company that pioneered the biotech industry to transform how we treat the world's most complex health problems. Welcome back to our final segment of Your Radio Doctor. We call this segment Your Weekly Prescription, brought to you by Genentech. Dr. Matt Winterstein, we've learned so much from you, and it's really incredible the work you're doing and your explanations are beautiful. What's your take-home message for our listeners? I think the most important thing is to recognize that uh, there is help out there that are available for people. I think that help provides some sense of hope for those that are struggling. Um, you know, if you yourself or somebody you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts, A, you're not alone, but B, there are resources out there available to you. We talked about 988 in the last segment, and so you can call that number, you can text that number. Uh, if you prefer to chat, you can go to 988lifeline.org to reach out to people that way. You know, it takes a lot of courage to seek help. But what I want people to remember is that if they are struggling, um, there are people that have evidence-based interventions that can support and help you. Uh, and I always kind of use the example of this. Listen, if you've gone to four providers before and you felt like no, none of those other people have helped you in any particular way, and you stop at that point in time, say, listen, nobody can help me because these four providers didn't work for me. What happens if the fifth person was the person that ultimately could have been the one that you would have connected with, that would have helped you navigate this crisis, that would have helped change the trajectory of your life? You have to keep looking. I know it's difficult. I know it's hard, but take the, you know, have the courage to do those kinds of things. Uh, your life is worth it and, and go for it. If people hear nothing else we discussed today, that gets a gold star next to it. Because when you think about it, the idea of considering suicide or attempting suicide is multifactorial. You just said there is no formula to, to, or boxes to check that explain why somebody decides to consider it depending on what they've faced, whether it's a life crisis, whether it's domestic violence or abuse of some sort, be it at home, uh, or in, in some other setting. So people end up, or the patient uh, who is considering suicide needs support or intervention that could be medical and or social, psychiatric, even spiritual. If sure. if you don't get that, that, um, that relief that you need from the provider, it, it's so brilliant of you to remind people that you're not hurting anybody's feelings. It's you and your life or your child or the person you're trying to help and right. keep going. And and if it and if spiritual is an additional feature, because that's the, an anchor in your family, can you address that? Yeah. I mean, it's, again, the goal is to develop a life worth living. Like that's the struggle that we have right there. And how you move forward in that direction is again, very individualized. And for people that are spiritual and feel like that's the connection that they have and that's what's keeping them going, you know what, if that's the only thing that you have going for you, that's keeping you alive right now, you better believe we're pulling on that in every which way we can until there are other things that we can add to the mix and really strengthen that overall sense of meaning in the world. And so, 
we're utilizing whatever we can get until we can build up a stronger base of support. And we often hear uh, spiritual leaders at least use the expression, a seamless garment that, and I would think that when uh, a young person, be it a child or an adolescent or a person of any age, um, is is facing a crisis or, or really deep sadness, that you're going to want to involve the whole family in counseling, yes? Right. Yeah. It, this is not summer camp. You know, you're not right. going to send your kid off to go to the doctor's office and they're going to come back 45 minutes later and be perfectly fine. We grow up in the context of our home, within the context of our community. And if we don't engage those elements of life around the care of people that are struggling, they will not get as they will not get better as quickly and as effectively as they can. So we need to engage families in, in the treatment and the work that we're doing um, so that kids feel like they have that support when they go home. Yeah. And and I'm sure that there are children who can't identify. And then when you bring yep. in the family, it might trigger a comment from a parent or a sibling or the child himself or herself. Dr. Matt Winterstein, you are such a superstar. It was really wonderful to have you on the show. You are providing hope and you're, I can understand why your patients and their families adore you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a true honor. Now for your real champion, I call this segment, You Are Not Alone. The words football hero don't begin to describe Kyle Ambrosi. An exemplary scholar athlete, Kyle approached studies, sports, relationships, and even summer jobs with dedication and discipline. As a junior at St. Joseph's Prep, he scored six touchdowns in one football game, which made him a celebrity in Philadelphia and across the country and won him a profile in Sports Illustrated. Along with the chiseled good looks of a celebrity, he had enough friends to fill a stadium. But the most impressive quality that Kyle displayed was his goodness. He was kind, thoughtful, and humble. Left a lasting impression on everyone he met. Always giving credit to the team, sharing the limelight, because he didn't like the attention on himself. Instead, his focus was pushing himself to do better. At the University of Penn, he excelled in the prestigious Wharton School with a GPA of 3.5. On a sunny October Saturday in his senior year, Kyle played one of the best games of his career, scoring two touchdowns against Bucknell. Even more memorable, his younger brother Greg recovered a fumbled snap and scored a touchdown in the same game. The excitement on campus was palpable. Kyle Ambrosi was a legend. He had it all. But two days later, Kyle lost his battle with depression and ended his life with suicide. Philadelphia's collective heart was broken, and we mourned together in disbelief, finding comfort in the countless tributes in newspapers and TV stories. The receiving line at his viewing lasted for seven hours. But when you meet Kyle's mother, you quickly understand the source of his strength and his passion for doing the right thing. Donna Ambrosi a leader in the nursing profession, and a leader in her community. Donna was raised in a beautiful family, the oldest of seven. Her mother ran a well-organized army and served as the role model for Donna's own superb management skills. She's been the administrator for a busy emergency department physician practice, comforted patients in hospice, 
and spent the last several years working at the Eagleville Hospital, which offers treatment for patients with substance use disorders and mental health issues. Donna is one of those people whom you describe as a giver, always calm, offering support and a listening ear. She raised her two boys to be respectful and responsible men of faith. Imagine the pain and anguish she felt when she lost Kyle. Remember, a mother isn't supposed to outlive her child. Led by her own faith, Donna knew, for the sake of her son Greg, she had to establish a new normal. People think grieving goes away, but it doesn't. But Donna found meaning in her suffering, and together with her son Greg and Kyle's best friend John Connors, they made it their mission to help other young adults and teens who suffered from depression. John has said that because Kyle touched so many lives when he was alive, they wanted to keep his legacy alive. 2009, the Kyle Ambrosi Foundation was established to educate young people, parents, teachers, and coaches about depression and suicide prevention. There's a yearly beef and beer fundraiser where hundreds of former teammates and friends gather to remember and support. The foundation provides need-based scholarships to students at University of Penn and St. Joe's Prep who share Kyle's values of hard work in the classroom and the football field. Donna is on the community board of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Both she and Greg speak in area schools to say emotional health is as important as physical health and to help students feel comfortable to talk about their own depression and realize they are not alone. She's involved with Minding Your Mind, a group of speakers who use storytelling to provide educational mental health challenges. The Jed Foundation in New York, which helps students with mental health issues transition from high school to college. And when Kyle's teammates and friends were in mourning, it was Donna and Greg who sent them messages of comfort. This coming Monday, October 10, will mark the 17-year anniversary of Kyle's passing. Please keep Donna and Greg in your hearts and prayers. We salute you, Donna and Greg Ambrosi, your real champions. Visit the website of the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention, that's AFSP.org. November 19, International Survivors of Suicide Loss Day. Register for an event to find connection and hope through a shared experience, that's AFSP.org. And the Kyle Ambrosi Foundation, Kyle Ambrosi, that's A-M-B-R-O-G-I, KyleAmbrosiFoundation.org. Thank you for listening. Join us again on Your Radio Doctor next week at a special time, 6 o'clock on Saturday evening. It's October, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, but ladies, your cancer prevention plan is more than just a mammogram. Tune in next Saturday evening at 6 to hear about cancer screenings for all women's cancers. Thank you to our exclusive sponsor, Independence Blue Cross, and for support from the Rothman Orthopedic Institute and Genentech. Our hearts go out to people suffering in Florida. Among other needs, please consider donating blood. Visit redcross.org for more information. Friends, it's flu season. Remember to get your flu shot. Send us a story about a champion in your family or community to info at yourradiodoctor.net. This is Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, wishing you a happy, healthy, and safe week with the ones you love. And always here to remind you that your health is your wealth. 
Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. To contact Dr. Marianne and to listen to today's show as well as past shows, visit yourradiodoctor.com. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program has been pre-recorded. I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars, Medicare's highest rating for 2022. Some plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits and some prescription drugs. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is a paid endorsement.